Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. So while we originate here live every morning, uh, Monday through Saturday in Medora, uh, during at least the foreseeable days of the uh, national pandemic, uh, the recordings are available elsewhere. And if you listen on Spotify or listen on YouTube, well, then you don't have to see me right here in Medora. Uh, I enjoy seeing your comments and questions that come in via the comments section here on Facebook and look forward to continuing a dialogue here, celebrating the history of Theodore Roosevelt, the history of our country, the progress of humanity. Now, Theodore Roosevelt is an inspiring figure. I enjoy greatly performing on stage as Theodore Roosevelt. will do so again for this, my ninth summer in a row here in Medora, uh, where I work with wonderful colleagues uh, all throughout Medora. Uh, we need your help. We're hiring. We plan to put on the Medora musical this summer. Uh, the Teddy Roosevelt Show and other entertainments will occur here. Uh, we hope you might be interested in visiting Medora.com. Good jobs for your college students and, and others in the family looking to do something really productive this summer. And meanwhile, enjoy the wilderness and the outdoors, the inspiration of the West. Uh, today in history, April 9th, 1865, the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia of General Robert E. Lee and the forces of the Army of Virginia, uh, Confederate States of America, surrendering to Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, for all intents and purposes, the end of the Civil War, but as Civil War historians know, uh, months uh, uh, of skirmishes ahead, that sort of a thing, but uh, certainly a wonderful place to stop, a historic site there today at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, perhaps on your way uh, eventually to visit Pine Knot, the uh, Edith and Theodore Roosevelt Pine Knot Foundation nearby Keene, Virginia. A wonderful little retreat about which we'll hear more. You, We may have touched on it briefly with the uh, story of John Burroughs on his birthday. Speaking of birthdays, happy birthday, Archibald Roosevelt. Uh, the fifth oldest of the old Lions Cubs uh, Archibald Roosevelt was born in Washington, D.C. Uh, during a time when Theodore Roosevelt had his family there in a rented home, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt was serving at the time as a United States Civil Service Commissioner. Uh, we heard about that service briefly yesterday uh, as uh, he served on that uh, with Governor Hughes 
former Governor Hughes of South Carolina. The Civil Service Commission came about uh, because in part of the legislation passed called the Pendleton Act, uh, Ohio Congressman and Senator, uh, previous vice presidential candidate under Breckenridge, if I recall properly, a uh, namesake of Pendleton, Oregon. And uh, the Pendleton Act created the United States Civil Service Commission after Gateau, a, a madman uh, uh, expecting a federal appointment, uh, killed President James Garfield at the train station in Washington, D.C. When Chester Arthur subsequently uh, had been the vice president, became president, a part of the accomplishment of that administration and of Congress was the passing of the Pendleton Act. That act required that at the time about 10% of federal employees, then numbering uh, just shy of 150,000, about 10% uh, by uh, civil service examination and by merit uh, would be hired and promoted uh, in places like the post office and the customs houses. Today, the Pendleton Act uh, covers some 90% of federal employees protects them from political retribution. With President Jackson, uh, we learned uh, to the uh, victor go the spoils. Uh, Jackson and subsequent presidents, their administration would come in and if that administration differed from the previous one in uh, political identification, then out went so many public servants and in came as a political reward for political work done. Uh, the uh, treasury, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the pay of public officials from the federal government was dispersed for political reasons rather than, than for uh, uh, the high uh, calling of doing uh, work well. And so our civil service uh, has as its great protection and origination, the Pendleton Act. Uh, that uh, passed in 1883, uh, the first uh, commissioners appointed. It was a three person commission. Uh, and uh, in 1883, in that same year, a young uh, general assemblyman in New York uh, he representing the Silk Stocking District of Manhattan, young Theodore Roosevelt introduced his New York State Civil Service Reform Bill on this date, April 9th, 1883. And uh, we'll be reading uh, from those brief remarks as they were recorded in the New York Times of the, uh, of the following day. On... Uh, if I may, I'll proceed right to uh, to that reading. Today's program likely to be uh, much briefer than uh, some of the other programs that we've had. Uh, that's perhaps to uh, give apology uh, before the act of tomorrow, reading in full the strenuous life. Theodore Roosevelt's speech given on April 10th, 1899, while serving as governor of New York, he gave the speech to the Hamilton Society in Chicago, Illinois. And that speech, I think, will be... Uh, uh, of interest to you. The, uh, the speech today is recounted by the uh, New York Times, April 9th, 1883. The bill merely proposes to do for the city of New York what the Pendleton bill has done for the United States. Its aim is to take the civil service out of the political arena where it now lies festering a reproach and a hissing to all decent men and the most terrible source of corruption that exists in the city and to apply to the municipal government the same business principles that obtain in every well-conducted private business to relieve us from the evils under which we labor owing to the present system of appointment 
for partisan reason on, reasons only. It is absolutely necessary that appointments should be made only after competitive examinations. This is the only way in which to shake off the hold that corrupt political rings and chieftains now have on the public through the civil service, which they and their predecessors have debauched until it has become a crying scandal. To the assertion that injustice may be done by these competitive appointments, I can only answer that for every one such, there are a hundred far grosser evils under the present system, and more than this. My object in pushing this measure is less to raise the standard of the civil service than it is to take the office holders as a body out of politics. It is a good thing to raise the character of our public employees, but it is better still to take out of politics the vast band of hired mercenaries whose very existence depends on their success, and who can almost always, in the end, overcome the efforts of men whose only care is to secure a pure and honest government. For in such a contest, the discipline of regulars, fighting literally for their means of livelihood, is sure in the end to overcome the spasmatic ardor of volunteers. The existence of these men as an organized body, existing only for their own selfish interests, is a standing menace to our free institutions, and it must and shall be removed before the people can decide the great public questions that arise purely on their merits, untrammeled by the base considerations that now surround them and the law must apply to both parties alike. One party practicing it, while the other did not, would afford a parallel to a sparring match in which one man struck foul blows and the other did not. The man who fought foul would win. My purpose is to make both parties fight fair, and when they do so, the people will then, and only then, be able to decide each measure only with regard to the effect it will have on the welfare of the country. May I say, Theodore Roosevelt was 24 years old when he thus spoke in favor of his legislation before the New York General Assembly. He served three one-year terms in the New York General Assembly first elected in November of 1881, and thus uh, uh, serving, uh, let me get that right. Yes, first elected in November of 1881, thus serving through the legislative years that covered 1882, 1883, and 1884. Uh, within the first months of being a New York General Assemblyman, working on uh, uh, information that had been uh, included in some court cases and in the newspapers, Theodore Roosevelt, as a freshman, sought the impeachment of a corrupt sitting New York judge. Uh, this following year, here he is to uh, uh, offer a bill that will take away from these political bosses the, the spoils of, of their labors. And uh, of course, in 1884, subsequent to being elected in 1883, Theodore Roosevelt becomes, uh, then the age of uh, 26, the Republican candidate for the speakership. It was a foregone conclusion, but the Democrats were split between the Tammany Democrats and the upstate conservative Democrats, men like uh, Grover Cleveland, the newly elected governor from Buffalo. And so during that schism, uh, uh, it was unable to uh, have a speakership arrived at when 
When the Democrats finally uh, came to a compromise, Speaker Theodore Roosevelt, at the age of 26, became the minority spokesman, the head of the Republican caucus uh, in the uh, in the General Assembly. And perhaps that may speak to the reason why, when uh, his daughter Alice uh, was born on the evening of uh, February 12th, 1884, and word came by telegram on the 13th uh, that he was a father. Uh, congratulations were all about, even his political opponents were, were happy for him. It was uh, soon thereafter that a second and ominous telegram came, and that telegram famously sending Theodore Roosevelt down the Hudson Valley through what the newspaper called a suicide fog. The train had to go slowly, and and uh, Theodore still raced to the home. Earlier uh, in the evening, uh, Brother Elliot had greeted a, a fellow family member with the words, uh, there is a curse upon this house, the house in which father, Theodore Roosevelt, had died, uh, uh, indeed uh, uh, embraced by Elliot throughout the final days uh, of, his, uh, of his life. The, uh, uh, those words were shared that there was a curse upon this house. Mother is dying and Alice is too. The New York General Assembly, though they had been castigated by young Roosevelt for over two years, uh, they declared an adjournment of the General Assembly, uh, something without precedent, uh, so that uh, others might join Theodore Roosevelt to acknowledge his mourning. The funeral, the twin funeral, two days later, I may have mentioned Owen Wister wrote that uh, Theodore knows neither what he does nor says. If I recall, the, the funeral may have been uh, over the weekend, perhaps Saturday. That following Monday morning, young Theodore Roosevelt, the cyclone assemblyman, was back on the floor arguing for his legislation. And this legislation was adopted in 1884, and uh, New York became the first state following the Pendleton Act to adopt its own civil service reform legislation. And to uh, Theodore Roosevelt must go uh, a good deal of credit. That's the reading today, but uh, I couldn't help myself. In his autobiography, Theodore Roosevelt uh, wrote of his General Assembly years in a, uh, in a chapter early on called Practical Politics. And I thought you might just like a little bit of the uh, insight that came from uh, a man who in 1913 is writing back about his, uh, his experiences uh, 30 years prior in the New York General Assembly. During my three years service in the legislature, I worked on a very simple philosophy of government. It was that personal character and initiative are not the prime requisites in political and social life. It was not only a good, but an absolutely indispensable theory as far as it went, but it was defective in that it did not sufficiently allow for the need of collective action. I shall never forget the men with whom I worked hand in hand in these legislative struggles. Not only my fellow legislators, but some of the newspaper reporters, such as Spinney and Cunningham, and then, in addition, the men in the various districts who helped us. We had made up our minds that we must not fight fire with fire, that on the contrary, the way to win out was to equal our foes in practical efficiency and yet to stand at the opposite plane from them in applied morality. It was not always easy to keep the just middle, especially when it happened that on one side there were corrupt and unscrupulous demagogues and on the other side, corrupt and unscrupulous reactionaries. 
Our effort was to hold the scales even between both. We tried to stand with the cause of righteousness, even though its advocates were anything but righteous. We endeavored to cut out the abuses of property, even though good men of property were misled into upholding those abuses. We refused to be frightened into sanctioning improper assaults upon property, although we knew that the champions of property themselves did things that were wicked and corrupt. We were as yet by no means as thoroughly awake as we ought to have been to the need of controlling big business and to the damage done by the combination of politics with big business. In this matter, I was not behind the rest of my friends. Indeed, I was ahead of them, for no serious leader in political life then appreciated the prime need of grappling with these questions. One partial reason, not an excuse or a justification, but a partial reason for my slowness in grasping the importance of action in these matters was the corrupt and unattractive nature of so many of the men who championed popular reforms, their insincerity, and the folly of so many of the actions which they advocated. Even at that date, I had neither sympathy with nor admiration for the man who was merely a money king, and I did not regard the money touch when divorced from other qualities as entitling a man to either respect or consideration. As recited above, we did on more than one occasion fight battles in which we neither took nor gave quarter against the most prominent and powerful financiers and financial interests of the day. But most of the fights in which we were engaged were for pure honesty and decency, and they were more apt to be against that form of corruption which found its expression in demagogy than against that form of corruption which defended or advocated privilege. Fundamentally, our fight was part of the eternal war against powers that prey. We cared not a whit in what rank of life these powers were found. To play the demagogue for purposes of self-interest is a cardinal sin against the people in a democracy exactly as to play the courtier for such purposes is a cardinal sin against the people under other forms of government. A man who stays long in our American political life, if he has in his soul the generous desire to do effective service for great causes, inevitably grows to regard himself merely as one of many instruments, all of which it may be necessary to use, one at one time, one at another, in achieving the triumph of those causes and whenever the usefulness of any one has been exhausted, it is to be thrown aside. If such a man is wise, he will gladly do the thing that is next, when the time and the need come together, without asking what the future holds for him. Let the half-god play his part well and manfully, and then be content to draw aside when the god appears. Nor should he feel vain regrets that to another it uh, is given to render greater services and reap a greater reward. Let it be enough for him that he too has served, and that by doing well, he has prepared the way for the other man who can do better. Oh my, I'm sure many could do much better than me trying to bring the history of Theodore Roosevelt alive, but it's a joy and a pleasure for me to do so. I feel as if I may have given short shrift to Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Roosevelt, Let's go back, if we may, to just celebrate uh, that boy in the White House uh, who, uh, of course, was the uh, owner of Algonquin, 
the Calico uh, uh, Shetland pony that young Quentin brought into the White House and up the freight elevator to go and see Archie. Uh, when asked why, uh, he explained that his brother Archie wasn't feeling well. And he knew that he would feel better if he could just see his favorite pony. It's to Archie that goes some credit for the White House Christmas tree. In uh, Theodore Roosevelt's administration, being a conservationist, uh, uh, he didn't think that uh, chopping down these pine trees uh, was healthy for the forests. And he prohibited uh, there being a Christmas tree in the Roosevelt White House. Uh, young Archie, with the help of a White House electrician, uh, was able to uh, sequester a small Christmas tree into one of the closets uh, off of the family's quarters and to have that tree uh, lit uh, with uh, lights and other decorations and revealed that Christmas tree at the White House to the Roosevelt family, much to the delight of Theodore Roosevelt and Edith Roosevelt. For Gifford Pinchot, Theodore Roosevelt's friend, a boxing and wrestling partner, the head of the Forest Service eventually, that great forester informed Theodore Roosevelt that actually the thinning of the forests, uh, that is the harvesting of small pine trees, would allow the larger trees to prosper. Uh, helping to clear out uh, uh, some of the thickly grown forests. This is, of course, before the days of the large commercial Christmas tree farms, which are a very important part of our ecology now. Archibald Roosevelt would have a, a storied educational career, uh, I do believe being dismissed from Groton, uh, the school that his older brothers uh, uh, had attended. Uh, he would go out and take school at the Evans School in Mesa, Arizona, it had a summer campus in Flagstaff and eventually graduating from uh, Andover, uh, the, uh, the man would go on to uh, graduate Harvard. Just in time to join the First World War, that war declared April 7th, uh, 1917. On April 14th, 1917, uh, Archibald Roosevelt married Grace Lockwood uh, in, uh, in uh, Massachusetts and then went off to war. Archibald Roosevelt, uh, Captain Archibald Roosevelt was wounded uh, in uh, 1918, came back to the United States and was convalescing at Sagamore Hill. When uh, on the morning of January 6, 1919, former President Theodore Roosevelt died in his sleep of a pulmonary embolism, it was that day that Archibald Roosevelt cabled his two surviving brothers in France that the old lion is dead. Uh, Archibald Roosevelt would uh, join World War II, would join the United States Army, uh, be commissioned a lieutenant colonel, and in New Guinea, uh, uh, landed with his forces, uh, fought in action there, uh, was uh, wounded by exploding ordnance in the same lower extremities where he was wounded in World War I. Archibald Roosevelt declared 100% disabled from his wounds in World War I, so declared also in World War II. And uh, Archibald Roosevelt uh, would go on to uh, live a long life. Uh, he was a successful uh, financier and banker. Uh, the uh, business, he went to work for Roosevelt and Sons and eventually uh, was the head of uh, Roosevelt and Cross, a bond house that continues in New York City and Buffalo and Hartford, Connecticut, I believe. The uh, late years for Archibald Roosevelt were perhaps made uh, much more difficult to in 1971, uh, while he was at the wheel of an automobile in Oyster Bay, uh, Long Island, New York, where they lived, 
Uh, his wife, Grace Lockwood Roosevelt, was killed in an automobile accident. Archibald Roosevelt himself uh, would pass in October of 1979 in Stewart, Florida, at a convalescent home there. Uh, he was the uh, oldest uh, and la he was the last remaining child of Edith and Theodore Roosevelt. And it was four months later in February of 1980 that his half-sister, his stepsister, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt and Alice Hathaway Lee Roosevelt, uh, that mentioned earlier, uh, it was uh, Alice who would die in 1980. Uh, while she is buried at the uh, cemetery uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, it is in Oyster Bay, Long Island at Young Cemetery, not far from mother and father, uh, where Archibald Roosevelt is buried and his uh, epitaph uh, at his gravesite, the old fighting man, home from the wars. Tomorrow, April 10th, the strenuous life, uh, or as uh, you'll hear, uh, something that uh, uh, is also known as the vigorous life, a little story there. And Saturday, April 11th, uh, another address, a very brief one to college students in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, back to the year 1899. So uh, the next two uh, speeches back from the time of Theodore Roosevelt as governor of the Empire State. I received something in the mail yesterday. This is from my friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. I want you to see what it says there. When you are ready, we'll be here with that beautiful view of the Badlands. We're getting ready in Medora, North Dakota. Have a wonderful day. Go out and make this country a better place. Wait. Stay in and make this country a better place. Get outdoors and get a little fresh air, social distance, stay at home, save lives. And we'll see you here tomorrow morning on Teddy Talks by Joe Wiegand and the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. Bully for Medora.